Am I on? Doesn't sound like I'm There we go. Okay. Just to remind everybody what's going to happen this weekend is that on Saturday we're going to have the ladies' prayer brunch at 10.30 in the morning. And then uh, Sunday um, we're not going to be having uh, a boat. Uh, we're going to, we've decided to do it via email. So we just got to thinking about it, looking at the list of members and thinking that it's not likely we're even going to get, even if we tried to encourage everybody to come, so we would have a quorum. I don't think we'll get everybody here, so we're going to, going to uh, send out uh, to the members a, uh, a vote because we need to ha have the official approval on things. Also, a reminder that a week from Monday, the Chafer Conference begins. That means there'll be some few people that will come in ahead of time, and they will be here uh, a week from Sunday. And um, so that's we. that'll be March 8th through 10th. A reminder that due to the pandemic, we are limiting attendance to 75, and most of them are going to be those who are in uh, some form of either preparation or already in uh, professional Christian uh, work. Speaking of which, we have a guest speaker tonight that will come up at about 8.20, 8.25, something like that for about 20 minutes. A lot of you know him, uh, Mark Perkins, who's pastor of Front Range Bible Church, is going to have a major career shift next year, and we all tease him because he's going to suffer for the Lord, and he's going. Uh, he's been going on missions trips for several years to Tahiti, and now he and Renee are going to move to Tahiti and suffer on the beach in Tahiti for uh, for the Lord. So uh, that's going to be quite a challenge. So he is going to come up and tell us about his uh, his new min ministry, and I, I'm looking forward to hearing. Uh, all that he has to say about that. So uh, when he, when I say amen, don't get up and leave. And he's going to come up here. We'll switch out our computers, hook him up on the uh, vid on the um, projectors so that he can go forward and uh, tell us what's going on. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin to look at God's word uh, this evening, we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, which means walking by the Spirit. And when we sin, we are no longer walking by the Spirit. So we need to uh, confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin, 
to God the Father, and instantly he forgives us of those sins and, in addition, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we can be here together this evening, fellowship together around your word. We're thankful for your goodness, your grace toward us. And Father, we're thankful that you have uh, given us the privilege and opportunity to serve you in this life, to glorify you, and to be a witness to the angels and to those around us of the truth of your word, that we may shine forth as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Now, Father, as we come together to study your word this evening, may we uh, be able to have the mental concentration to focus on your word, to set aside all the worries, cares, anxieties, uh, things that irritate us, that come into our minds while we're trying to focus on you, and that we can just relax, study your word, and enjoy learning truth. Father, as we study these things that are so controversial in our culture today, we pray that you may give us insight into how to apply and relate these things in our own lives because we do know people who are involved in these various sins and they are family members, they are friends, they are neighbors, they are co-workers, and we need to understand how to deal with them in grace without compromising the truth of your word. Give us insight and wisdom, as James says, to handle these various situations. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, you can open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 5. Once again, as I said on Tuesday night, we're about four weeks away from the last time we had a lesson here. So that's a little while I could give you a test. What did I talk about the last time? But I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I had to go back, as I said, on Tuesday night and listen to the message to find out just what did I cover, what did I say, what did I not say, things of that nature. And the topic that we're addressing as we get into Second Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, is the situation in Sodom. As we're in this situation or this section of Second Peter chapter 2, Peter began by warning that there were false teachers who were going to come into the church, that they were going to deny the Lord who bought them, and that there would be judgment upon them. But also, uh, he also talks about how God will also provide grace at the same time. And so he gives these examples. The first was the fallen angels that sinned the sons of God who cohabited with the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6, and God brought judgment upon them. That was the flood of Noah, but the grace side of it was God delivered Noah and uh, the seven people who were with him on the ark, and he established the uh, foundation for a new beginning going forward uh, after, after the flood. And then the next example is the one we're looking at now, which is the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the midst of that, there's grace. 
and he delivers righteous Lot. We talked about that, that that refers to the fact that Lot had imputed righteousness. You read through the episode in episodes in Genesis with Lot, and you don't think he's too righteous, not experientially, but obviously he had trusted Christ as his Savior. And like, like Abraham, as it's stated in Genesis 15, 6, he had believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. So he is righteous Lot positionally, uh, righteous lot, let's say, in terms of his imputation, but he is uh, has compromised a lot with the world around him, and it's a little difficult to get him to pull up stakes and get out, even though it might mean his, li- his life, and it certainly cost his wife uh, her, her life. And so as we look at these episodes of Sodom and Gomorrah, it is a timely topic for us, and it has been in our culture, in our world, for uh, several decades with the pressure coming from those who are uh, involved in what has come to be called the LGBTQP uh, movement. And P just means plus, and they add, they, whoever you are, you add a number of other uh, letters to the end to describe whatever position you're taking. But... This is a timely one, and it is one that is a serious and significant problem in in our nation. Almost every day there are things that come up that we can see on any news report that relate to something uh, coming from the LGBTQ uh, community. And they are pushing and pressing. They They don't want simply acceptance. They want approval. They don't want just not to be discriminated against. They want everything that they do in their lifestyle to be okay, to be moral, to no longer be condemned, and to be not just accepted but approved and valued. And so it's it's not a matter of saying, well, we're going to live and let live, and which is what tolerant tolerant means. We're going to have to approve them, and they want to shut down anybody, especially Christians, who want to go to the Bible and say that that is a sin. And one of my problems with it is not that it's an egregious sin or any worse than any other sin. It's that if you want to have your, your sins legalized and approved by everybody, why can't I have my sins legalized and approved by everybody? Uh, sin is sin, and there's no sin that's too great for the grace of God. There is no sin that is distinctively or categorically different from any other sin, as we will see. And unfortunately, too many legalistic Christians, self-righteous Christians, and often hypocritical Christians have made sexual sin some sort of secondary sin, especially if it involves uh, homosexuality. And so that's produced a lot of anger and resentment on the other side. But but that comes whenever somebody comes along and says, the Bible says that whatever your uh, favorite pet sin is, the Bible says that's a sin. And there are people that if you say something like that, they will make it their mission in life to destroy you. I had experience with that in my first church. And I've seen that over and over again, that people who want, don't want their 
sin to be a sin will go after you with everything they have if you just teach what the Word of God says. And right now, uh, this is a significant matter because there is a bill before Congress that is euphemistically called the Equality Act. Now, we all believe in equality, don't we? And that's, that's the deception that's here. This bill isn't about equality because if this bill gets passed, it will destroy the rights of Christians to teach and proclaim the whole truth of Scripture. If it is voted in, then it will um, make it a criminal civil rights offense to teach what the Bible says about homosexuality, whether it's male to male, lesbianism, female to female, whatever. If we say that it violates God's plan in these sexual relationships, that, uh, they sh- that all sexual relationships should be confined to marriage and that they should be heterosexual, and that's what the Bible teaches, then we are to be condemned. We are their enemy, and they are, have gained a voice where we are the enemy of peace, we are the enemy of, of stability in this country, and we are the ones who are arrogant, we are the ones who are hostile, and they have gained the, um, uh, ga- gained the hearing of the press that is loud in their approbation of their lifestyle, probably because many members of the press are participating in that lifestyle. But what we know as Christians is that homosexuality, along with murder and thievery, gossip and slander, idolatry, and heterosexual sexual relationships outside of marriage, whether it's adultery where uh, one or both of the partners are married to someone else, or whether it's fornication where neither of them are married to each other or to anyone else, uh, all of these are sins. And Jesus Christ paid the price for all sin on the cross. And that's our message as, as believers, be grace-oriented. That They have their sins, we have our sins, everybody has their sins, and Christ paid the penalty for all of them so that in salvation there is divine forgiveness for all sin. And we are not and should not be in a position of judging them. But let's find out what's going on in this Equality Act. Uh, it is coming before Congress even as we speak. There may there have been statements made that they may stay in session all through the weekend to to vote on this. It was voted on earlier under President Trump, but and there were a number of Republicans who voted for it. It never made it to the Senate, and it would probably have to have a certain number of Republicans vote in favor of it to get it in before the Senate, but. Its purpose is to give a protected status to uh, those who are gender confused and those who are uh, members of the lesbian community, the gay community, the bisexual community, the transgender community. All of them would have the same protections under law that are part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. What they want to do is change the definition of sex in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which said that uh, all discrimination based on race, sex, or national origin was illegal. And 
now what they want to do is say that sex there includes sexual orientation. It includes uh, whether you're transgender or whatever it might be. And so that if anything is said that is that states that these are sinful activities, then that would come under some sort of uh, perhaps criminal criminal uh, penalty. If sexual orientation and gender identity become protected by law, then this is going to have devastating consequences for religious freedom. One writer put it this way. He said, in 1993, Representative Nancy Pelosi and Senator Chuck Schumer co-sponsored the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It was signed by President Bill Clinton. This was a major victory for religious liberty. But now Pelosi and Schumer regret their vote, even to the point of supporting this Equality Act, knowing full well that it exempts itself from the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This is perverse. There could be no more serious undercutting of religious liberty than what they are proposing. It would mean that Catholics, Evangelicals, Orthodox Jews, Mormons, Muslims, and many other religious communities could not raise religious liberty objections to any of the aforementioned rights of transgender women or homosexuals. In effect, religious entities would be uh, secularized. He goes on to say, for example, if the Equality Act were to become law, Catholic foster care programs would be shut down. They would either have to agree to allow two men to adopt children, a clear violation of church teachings, or lose federal funding. This is the kind of gotcha type of element that makes this bill so pernicious. The American Family Association, in an email I received yesterday, stated that U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will attempt uh, to pass the uh, Radical Equality Act this week, a bill designed to wield a wrecking ball to religious liberty. The bill has nothing to do with equality, but everything to do with punishing Christians' religious liberty. The destructive legislation goes far beyond the recent and disastrous Supreme Court decision to add sexual orientation and gender identity as a civil right for government employment purposes under Title VII. If the House and Senate were to pass Speaker Pelosi's bill and Democrat President Joe Biden were to sign it into law, it would unleash radical liberals to attack those whose faith teaches that marriage is only between one man and one woman and that sexual identity of male and female is a fixed biological fact. By government edict, business owners, employees, and customers alike will be subject to radical LBGT agenda. One, Female business owners, customers, and employees would be forced to share spaces in restrooms and dressing rooms with men who claim to be women. Two, women's sports would be forced to open up to the participation of men who claim to be women. That will destroy women's sports. Three, healthcare providers and professionals would be forced to perform gender transition procedures, sex changes, and provide medical services, hormone therapy, that would violate their moral and religious convictions. Fourth, adoption and foster care agencies will be forced to place children into same-sex households and into homes of individuals suffering from gender confusion. 
college and professional sports stadiums would be required to open their restrooms to either sex. This bill is a direct assault of the legal protections of the First Amendment, freedom of speech, and freedom to practice and teach your religion's views. So what we are studying right now is extremely important to understand what is going on. And one of the things that I pointed out in the introduction last time is that when you listen to um, the homosexual community, they are trying to say that this verse in Ezekiel 16 uh, goes back to actually 46, 48, 49, Sodom is mentioned. And here it states, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Now, that's not gay pride. And this is saying that the sin was arrogance. But arrogance is the underlying factor of every single sin. Every sin that I've mentioned so far tonight, underlying factor is arrogance every single time. You can't get away from it. Arrogance is man's thinking that he can define morality apart from God. And But this, we'll get to this passage in Ezekiel and go through it. This is not using Sodom to refer to the literal historical Sodom. It is a nickname, a pejorative nickname that God gave to Jerusalem at this time because Jerusalem was acting in many ways like Sodom and God was bringing judgment on um, on. Uh, Jerusalem for that very thing. Remember, Ezekiel writes uh, during the time between the first invasion of Nebuchadnezzar and the third invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, in the 590s, Ezekiel is taken uh, taken to uh, Babylon, and when he's when he's writing uh, there, the Israelites in Jerusalem are sacrificing babies to the fires of the arms of Chemosh right there in the Kidron, in the um, Valley of Gehenna. And they are committing all sorts of other sins. It was a horrible de- degradation of culture at that particular time. So this is what we need to look at. Last time we looked at our passage in 2 Peter 2.4 and saw that this is a series of examples of God's judgment as well as God's grace. God's grace always precedes judgment. When There are times when it is necessary for God to uh, condemn what a culture or a nation is doing, and God has to bring judgment on them. But God always precedes that with grace with the offer of salvation, the opportunity to repent, which means to turn back to God as the Ninevites did. And God withheld his judgment for 200 years. There's always that offer of salvation. God is is more prone to forgive us than to destroy us. As As Paul says in First uh, Timothy, that God desires all men to be saved, that, that Christ understands our weaknesses, for he was tempted in all points as we are. And so the presentation we have of Scripture is of a loving, caring God, but not a permissive God, 
not a God who's going to uh, turn a blind eye to sin. He may withhold judgment for uh, years or decades or in, in some cases centuries as he did in, in light of the Canaanites. He told Abraham that he was going to give him the land of Canaan as, as the land for Israel, but their time wasn't ready yet. And he, he said it'll be 400 years until their sin is ripened to the point the judgment will come. And, and that's a loving God. That's a God who cares more about giving us an opportunity to turn to him and to walk with him than to just harshly judge us. And unfortunately, there are too many self-righteous and legalistic Christians who don't understand that. They have no grace orientation, no humility whatsoever, and they just want to go around and play whack-a-mole with every uh, person that they run into that is doing something that they disapprove of. So uh, we first told about the fact that God brought judgment. He did not spare the angels, that is the fallen angels, the sons of God, when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and delivered them to chains of deep darkness to be reserved for judgment. And he did not spare the ancient world. So there's judgment on the angels and on the ancient world, but he preserved Noah a preacher of righteousness, teaching how to be saved, how to have imputed righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then our passage, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. We have ungodly in this passage, ungodly referring to the unbelievers, who were destroyed in the flood. So that is clearly a term Peter is using for those who are not saved in contrast to those who are righteous. So there's a condemnation to those who have rebelled against God. And on the other hand, there is God's grace in delivering righteous Lot. And he would have, and Lot and his daughters were saved. And we know he would have, uh, his wife could have been saved, except she disobeyed the angel and turned back and looked back to Sodom and immediately was turned into a pillar of salt. And then uh, there were the uh, boyfriends of his of Lot's daughters that refused to leave. So the, the grace of God was extended to many, but few accepted. And we know that this sin at Sodom, because that's what that's the next question we need to address, and the one I'm a answering tonight is what happened in Sodom? Uh, is it just uh, were, were they just arrogant, or was it something more? Was it something more pernicious? Was it something more uh, corrupting? Was it something more destructive? And that is the impact of these kinds of sexual sins, because as as we'll see, they directly attack two of the uh, six foundations for any civilization, the divine institutions. And once you start uh, destroying those, individual responsibility, marriage, family, government, which means the rule of law, internationalism or global, globalism, God established national, nations, and so international internationalism and globalism are... Um, are rejected, and then Israel as a divine institution. And we've covered all of these things uh, recently in a lot of detail. 
But we looked at the parallel passage in Jude 6, which also talked about these two, giving, talks about these two examples of God's grace and judgment. Talks about the examples of the fallen angels in Genesis 6 and describes what they did in comparison to the sin at Sodom. This is an important passage because, of course, as I pointed out before, there are those who just don't want to believe that this sin in Genesis 6, that the sons of God there uh, describes fallen angels. They just can't quite understand how that could work, so therefore they reject the plain meaning of the text of Scripture in the Old Testament, and they do it again here in Jude. So let's just run through this uh, again just to remind ourselves. And angels who did not keep their own domain, that's the Greek word arche, meaning their, their first in order, their first sphere of influence or power, that is where they were as angels in heaven. But they abandoned their proper abode, and he has kept them in eternal bonds. Now, the word for proper abode is the Greek word oike terion, oike from the root oikos, meaning home or place of uh, habitation or dwelling place. They abandoned heaven. They abandoned their role and responsibilities as elect angels, and they looked on the daughters of men, and they wanted to have this experience that they couldn't have as angels in immaterial bodies. They wanted to have this sexual experience, so they were able to transform their immaterial bodies into material bodies. And we see an example of this uh, as a prelude to the, to the events in Sodom. In Genesis chapter 18, God, in the form of a man, accompanied by two angels in the form of men, came to Abraham's tent. And they have all the apparent form and function of a human body. They eat, they drink, they sleep, they rest, they walk, they talk. And so it can be assumed that that all of the other bo- uh, bodily functions were uh, were part of their... Their, their bodies at that time. So they left their first abode. And now when we read this, it says, and angels. Now the word angel, angelos in the Greek, is a masculine plural noun. We've got to get into a little grammar here. That's a masculine plural noun. Now remember that because we're going to see a, a couple of pronouns in the next verse and we have to decide to what to what word they refer. And the comparison comes at the beginning of 7, that these angels who left their own domain, their proper abode, just as Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's our comparison. So on the one hand, you have uh, something that these angels did, and on the other hand, you have a parallel in Sodom and Gomorrah, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities. Remember, there were uh, five cities of the plain down along the Dead Sea area. And this word city in Greek is the word polis. It's a feminine noun. So we have just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities, feminine noun, around them. 
Now, who's the them refer to? It refers to the cities because it's a feminine plural pronoun. doesn't refer to the angels. It refers to the cities. Since they, again, a feminine plural pronoun. Since they, that is the cities, in the same way as these. But these is not a feminine plural. It's a masculine plural. So that's got to refer back to a masculine noun. Well, the only masculine noun that it could refer back to is the masculine noun at the beginning of verse 6, which is angels. So when we look at verse 7, the same way as these, masculine plural. So the, the sin of the people in the cities was similar to the sin of the angels. So the sin of the angels is a sexual sin. The sin in Sodom and Gomorrah is a sexual sin. It's not just a sin of arrogance. That arrogance underlies every single sin. Uh, So they indulged, and then it's explained, they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. In the Greek, it's heteros. It's not uh, homo, homo. Homos, which has to do with similar of the same kind, it's similar of a different kind. We all get homogenized milk. That's where it's all blended together and it's the same. That's what homo means. So when you have homosexual, it's talking about somebody of the same sex. So here it's going after those of strange flesh that is something different that wasn't legitimate. The angels were going after human flesh, a different body than their, than their own. So these, same way as these, the, uh, that is the angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. So if their sin is a sexual sin, then the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, in order to have a comparison, must also be a sexual sin. And then, of course, it goes on to say this was set forth as an example, uh, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, when we look at this, we need to understand some basic principles in the background. And sometimes these are referred to as establishment principles, but I've gotten to where I prefer to call them foundational principles. From uh, Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? When a culture self is, is in self-destructive mode, when it destroys itself, the, the, the righteous are going to suffer right along with it. Lot did. I mean, he lost everything he had. It was destroyed in Sodom. He, he just escaped with his, with his two daughters. If the foundations are destroyed, we've talked about this, what are the foundations of any city, any, um, any nation, any civilization, any culture? And they are these six divine institutions, personal responsibility. We are all held accountable by God for every decision that we make. Marriage, God has provided for the lifelong companionship between a man and a woman serving God together. He created them, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, in the, that he created them in his image and likeness, male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis chapter 2, 
God describes how he brought a companion to Adam. He didn't create Eve separately. He created her from his side. So there is a genetic DNA connection between men and women. Women are not a separate creation. They are from the side, and that gives an organic biological unity to the human race. But marriage is designed by God, one man, one woman, to complement each other in the pursuit of God's plan and purpose for their life. And in doing that, they are to be fruitful and multiply. They are to have children and to educate them and train them and pass on their values to the next generation. Those three were all, as we've studied, were all established before sin ever came into the human race because they are for the prosperity and the blessing of the human race. And then after the flood, the first thing that happened is God had to change things a little bit, and so he established uh, human government in the Noahic covenant, the rule of law. And so Christians have to stand up for the rule of law. And when we see the anarchy that's been going on in this country over the last year, and you can go back to the 60s, and you can go back to some of the things that happened in the 20s and even in the 19th century, uh, this is all wrong. It doesn't matter if the cause may be right. A right thing done in a wrong way is always wrong. And we have to understand that, that you cannot argue that the end justifies the means. That is the methodology of Marxism. But, of course, we see all of this blending together today. We have cultural Marxism, and we have economic Marxism, and we have critical race theory, and we have all of these things that are coming together. And that's why you need to be tuning in to the uh, presentations at the Chafer Conference this year because that's our focus. And what the instructions that I have given the speakers is that the people in the pew and these other pastors in the pulpit are all wrestling with trying to understand what is going on in the world around us and how do we understand and get a better grip on these concepts like cultural Marxism and critical race theory and white privilege and all uh, and the the kind the, the ideas of racism that are being uh, touted today, we need to understand these things so that we can communicate to our children and our grandchildren what they are and how they will be manifest in their lives, how they will hear these things from their teachers how they will hear these things from their uh, friends at school, and how they will constantly be exposed to these things in the uh, children's uh, programs that they see on television and movies. And I've just been uh, absolutely appalled by a couple of the animated uh, cartoons that I have seen that are marketed to young children and the human viewpoint stuff that is that's coming across here and and children are being educated and and brainwashed from a very early age to go along with these values of our of our new culture 
So it's the family that stands in the gap. And when the family doesn't have divine viewpoint and the family isn't communicating the divine viewpoint, isn't following the principles of teaching the children about God and and God's grace and salvation, redemption, and God's word all the time when they rise up and when they sit down and as they go through life, as Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6 talks about, um, then we're in trouble. We have to hold to the rule of law. And then nations, this is the, the, all these different ideas that are coming across there are just different facets of the same basic philosophy that is driving this world towards a one-world government, towards internationalism and globalism, which had its birth at the Tower of Babel, which we've studied many times in Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 11, and that's the goal. Uh, one day that's going to manifest itself in the kingdom and the rule and the reign of the Antichrist. But we don't know when that's going to be. And uh, so many people, and I've heard people in this congregation make these comments, oh, I think the Lord's going to come back soon. Well, did he give you a clue? Has he told you anything? There are a lot of people who thought the Lord was going to come back. There have been horrible circumstances that happened. Uh, you go back to Christians in the Roman Empire in the 4th and 5th century as the uh, Vandals and the Goths were invading Rome and they eventually sacked uh, Rome. And, uh, and uh, pe- people thought, well, this is the end. The Lord's going to come back and, and we're going to go. And man, it didn't happen. That was 15, 1,600 years ago, and it has happened. There have been many times when it looked that way. And I always always remember what one of my seminary professors used to say, uh, Dr. Uh, Dwight Pentecost. And Dr. Pentecost was a- absolutely fantastic on prophecy, and he said, Satan has no more idea when the rapture is going to occur than you do or I do. So he has to be ready in every decade, in every generation, to have his person on the scene that can move into that role of the Antichrist. And I think about it. That's why you can go back through history and say, well, that's why they thought Napoleon was the Antichrist. That's why they thought Bismarck was the Antichrist. That's why they thought Hitler was the Antichrist. That's why they thought Saddam Hussein might be the Antichrist. Well, Satan's always got somebody who looks like it because he's got to be ready. He doesn't have any more of a clue about this than you do or that I do. So don't get caught up in all of this prophetic speculation, which happens to so many people who really aren't taught very well. Uh, But all these things are pushing that way, and they've been pushing that way for hundreds of years. And it's not going to be until the rapture occurs and the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, is removed that it's all going to finally come uh, come into place and actually happen. But just because you see that it could and that the, uh, that the mechanics are in place doesn't mean it's going to be that way. And then the last one is Israel. Now, all the divine institutions are set, on, set up on the principle that they are for everybody, for all human beings, for the purpose of stability. And they apply whether they're believers or unbelievers. You can have an unbelieving culture that honors these foundational principles, and they will have a stable culture, and they will have a stable nation. 
And so in the Abrahamic covenant, God told Abraham that those who bless you, I will bless. Doesn't matter. He doesn't say those believers who bless you, I will bless. He says, those who bless you, I will bless, and those who treat you disrespectfully, because it's two different words. English translates it both words with the word curse, but they're two different Hebrew words. Those who treat you dis- and your people disrespectfully, I will judge. And he doesn't say those who, those who are non-Christians who treat you disrespectfully. It applies to everybody. So this fits the pattern. It is a principle that applies to believer and unbeliever alike for the principle of divine blessing and stability of, of a nation. So this is what Genesis is all about. It's the book of foundations. You get all of these in the first 12 chapters of Genesis. And with chapter 12, the focus shifts to Abraham. And the focus shifts to what God is going to do with Abraham and his descendants. And it's in the context of that that you have this judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah because Genesis 12 is God giving the covenant or, or at least promising the basics of the covenant to Abraham. Genesis 19 is when we get the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 18, God and these two angels come to visit Abraham, and it is a time when they're going to um, uh, renew this covenant. And this time when they're going to also bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah because Sodom and Gomorrah represented a threat to the seed. It represented a threat to Abraham and his family and his descendants. And so God needed to judge them to remove that threat because this kind of licentiousness and sexual perversion, this rejection of divine institutions and rejection of God leads to the destruction of a nation. Now, it didn't remove it completely from that area because the Canaanites had already bought into all of this and God was going to give them about 400 years, and then he judged them and used Israel as his instrument. So what we see in terms of a chronology is the flood occurred about 2500 B.C., and this is a second beginning. Now I'm gonna, I need, this is an old slide. I'd, I would change that now. Uh, there's some indications that, that possibly this could be closer to 3000 B.C., but Abraham's date is pretty solid. He was 2166 B.C., and through Abraham, uh, God is going to call out a new uh, people uh, for himself. Now, what happens during this period, after the flood, is this new civilization develops in this second beginning. And it's the civilization, the first kingdom that is established is with a a pagan rebel against God by the name of Nimrod. He is the king in Babel, and he's the one that is the power behind the Tower of Babel. And now we get a description, a historical description of what happens in these generations in Romans chapter 1. And in Romans 1.21, we read, because although they knew God, everybody who came off the ark knew God, But within two or three generations, you have the birth of Nimrod, and they reject God. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile or empty in their thoughts, 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools. How did they become fools? Well, they rejected God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He's living and thinking as if God doesn't matter. And they changed the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over. Three times in this passage, God gives them over. These are stages that God pulls back the restraints and gives people what they want so that they can self-destruct. Therefore, because they had rejected him and they didn't want God in their life, God gave them up to uncleanness in their lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. So this is the development of lesbianism. And then in verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts. To dis- Have I read that already? Yes, I did. Okay, I had that slide duplicated. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the women. So you have lesbianism mentioned first, and then male homosexuality mentioned second. Uh, the men leaving the natural use of the of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves a penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now the two big sins that are mentioned here are lesbianism and male homosexuality. But look at the, what happens in verses 29 and 30. They are part of this whole complex of other sins. So they're not some separate category of worse sins that somehow are too great for the grace of God, that a person can't be saved, and they're just right along with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they're whisperers, they're, they're conspirators, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. And when we get to looking at the passages in Genesis, I mean in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, and in Galatians 5, uh, 21, 22, and you also go to Revelation chapter 21, 5, 6, and 7, you have these, these sin lists. And those who commit these sins forfeit their inheritance. And too many Christians have understood that as a loss of salvation. But if, you, if I made a list of all of those different sins, it would be just like this list. And none of us would get saved. So it can't be talking about getting into heaven. It's talking about our inheritance, our rewards when we get to heaven, that if we give ourselves over to a lifestyle of sin as believers, then we forfeit the rewards that God would give us if we had served him and lived for him in this life. And so we come now to the, the, all of that by way of introduction brings us to the beginning of Genesis 19, and I'll come back and we'll go through that episode and draw some connections next time. But I told Mark that I would uh, quit a little early so that he would have time. 
have a little more time to to speak, so uh, we're going to go ahead and close here. But this sets the stage, and it shows that that homosexuality, while some of its consequences may be more destructive than other sins, we don't really know that. You think about the gossip, the slanderer. You think about somebody who is a thief a murderer, and somebody who is a Lothario who is having affairs with every woman he comes across and the destructive impacts on families. We just can't say that. But it is it has evil consequences for a culture to, to have a permissive view of homosexuality. But that doesn't mean that we are to be judgmental or hateful. I mean, so many of us have friends, co-workers, family members, who are homosexual, and we have to treat them with grace and kindness because that's their sin, but we have our own sins. So we, we can't be judgmental of others. We have to deal with them in grace, and hopefully that will be something that God can use to draw them to himself. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray for our nation As we see this equality bill coming before Congress, we pray that you would uh, give grace and wisdom to the believers that are in Congress to be able to uh, gently and graciously, kindly articulate a position that that comes from wisdom, the wisdom of Daniel, uh, to be able to articulate a view that does not create a sense of animosity or hate or hostility toward those who are involved in these various uh, sexual sins involving these uh, homosexuality and lesbianism and transgender. And Father, we pray that you would continue to give people in the church a sense of what is right and what is wrong. For there are too many pastors and too many seminaries and Bible colleges that are uh, that have compromised already because they take federal dollars, and as a result of that, they have to change uh, change their views, and they have to have. Um, I know of some very well known, uh, normally very orthodox schools that have LGBTQ student groups on their campuses all because they took federal dollars. Father, we pray that you would um, transform this situation, but that can only happen through your grace. Give us wisdom as we deal with those who are friends or family, those we work with that we may not, um, that we may, as we reject the sin, that we don't reject or judge the sinner. May we be examples of your grace, but not compromising the absolutes. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Mark's going to come up. We're going to do a quick change of uh, computers here. And then you'll use the handheld there.
So uh, 33 years ago today, I think, Renee and I left for Denver, Colorado. And this Sunday is the 33rd anniversary of pastoring Front Range Bible Church. And so uh, it's a significant date. It makes me very nostalgic to be here. I was here the last time, I believe, uh, six uh, years ago, uh, five years ago, uh, I was too sick to attend a Chafer conference. And um done a lot of traveling uh, since I last saw you all. Uh, three times uh, I visited the uh, Valley of the Shadow of Death with leukemia. And um, five times been to Tahiti. And through all the treatment and all the adventures and everything else, uh, we uh, noticed that there was a, a blank spot on the missionary map uh, where uh, there were no sound Bible teaching uh, teachers or uh, any kind of missionary organization, uh, no church organization, um, no evangelical organization I think that uh, we might identify with. And so uh, on the island of Tahiti, there are, oh, come on, I know you can do this. Should be coming up. Okay, we're good. All right. Uh, for some reason, it's good on there, but we'll just do it this way. Is that going to work? No, it's not. Okay, I'll get it. Let's try it this way. For some reason, my slideshow isn't running, so we're going to do it this way. No, it's still not showing the second slide. Someone tell me what's wrong. It's all hooked up, and it's not, uh, it's not running like it should. So, um, yeah, I can, I'm sure. Or, or we can, um, yeah, it's possible. So just select the next slide here. Yeah, that's what I tried, but it didn't show. You got to stop the slideshow. Just stop the slideshow. Okay. So, oh, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. How are we doing now? Still not? Okay. You have, you have to close this window. Get rid of this. Okay. You know what? Can we just maybe start over? Yeah. When in doubt, kill it. Okay. We have our crack team of experts up here. Okay. We got it. Is it coming? Just go slide by slide now. Well, you now get it over there, Jim. Play, play it. Hit the play. Okay. Hit the slideshow here. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Tell us where we are. Where From we the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. What do we got? Yeah, it's up there. Okay. Here we go. Yes. 
Okay. Wow. Okay. So, uh, thank you very much. So anyway, it's been an adventure uh, getting here. And um, we noticed that there was, there was nothing going on in the nation of French Polynesia. And uh, that uh, kindled my imagination about what could be. And so we started to reach out and develop contacts there. And so uh, you, you notice that the Tahiti is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Just to orient you, uh, number one is where Tahiti is. Two is Hawaii. And so it's across the equator. And as you're driving south, you turn left and go to Tahiti. So it's kind of like that left turn at uh, Albuquerque. So uh, here are the islands of Tahiti and Morea. And uh, we operate mostly out of Papara on the south coast of Tahiti, but uh, we've been all over the island and also on the island of Morea. Uh, we hope to be reaching out even more uh, as we, uh, there are 116 more islands to visit in the country. And so we may uh, have some uh, pilot and aircraft logistics helping us. And uh, we're going to get to as many as possible and look for people who are on fire for Bible teaching and would love to be educated as pastors. And so this is a Panahu Bay, Morea. Uh, it looks uh, really beautiful and even breathtaking. Uh, but I want you to know that about a half mile from right here is a little Bible study that we've done on a number of occasions. And what, what's going on there is even more beautiful. It's people who are interested in God's word. And um, uh, every time we've gone there, have just uh, been very hungry uh, for what we've been offering. Uh, last time I was there, there were a couple of men who were so excited about the prospect of a Bible conference on their island. And so uh, Tahiti has less than 300,000 people. Uh, that's about the, uh, the population of Lubbock, Texas. So uh, 118 occupied islands, five island groups. Tahiti has about 175,000 people on that island. Uh, the languages are French and Tahitian and also several other smaller island uh, tribal languages, uh, Marquesan, Tuamotuan, and so on, but mainly French and Tahitian. And when I had a notion that I'd like to uh, do more teaching down there, I began to learn French. So uh, now I know that language. We've added another language in there. Um, they're Christian in name. About 95% of the citizens of Tahiti would say that they're Christians. Uh, the rest of those are um, uh, animist tribal religion. Um, if you want a briefing on that, watch the movie Moana. I almost said Morana. So uh, anyway. Um, but practicing Christians, maybe 5% uh, 
uh, maybe 5% who, uh, who see the Bible as their authority, so quite a bit less. Uh, so what's needed is Bible training for Tahitians, and they, they really uh, don't need that, and in a few places, they're really hungry for it. So our mission, we're organized to assist the people of French Polynesia and the Great Commission of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, especially through education. And so uh, we uh, would love to educate around the kitchen table and the Sunday school uh, to even the highest levels of university training. And uh, we're working on bringing um, accredited Bible college training to those who want it on the island of Tahiti and beyond. So through education, uh, we pray that we will be a vessel of God's blessing, uh, tiny in population, geographically vast, those 118 islands are spread out over an area the size of Europe. And so uh, they have the ocean area of Europe, and um, they have the land area a little bigger than Rhode Island. It's the total land area of all these islands if you smush them together. So we have a number of current ministries and connections at this time. Uh, we are working in, with uh, local churches in Papara and Papiari, Tahiti, that's the south coast. Uh, a couple of medium-sized churches there. Uh, one of them is about 150 years old, uh, Anglican roots, now independent. And a few years ago, they had this big revival and a, a number of people believed in Christ. Uh, they walked about 50 yards over and got baptized in the lagoon. And uh, from there, uh, they've been really, really hungry for Bible teaching. And uh, they've been moving away from some of their Anglican practices. Uh, in fact, every time they kind of run into, well, tell us about baptism... Uh, you know, infant baptism, oh, we can't do that anymore. Uh, well, what about the, the Lord's Supper? Is that actually the, you know, the transmuted body and blood of the Lord? Well, no. Okay, we can't do that. And so uh, that's been a great experience. Uh, also a number of home studies in Papiete, Arue, and on Maharepa, the one I mentioned uh, earlier on the island of Morea. And with the, uh, the ones in Papiete and Arue, our French Protestant um, believers, that denomination is a member of the World Council of Churches. And everything that... Uh, that Dr. Dean talked about tonight, uh, they would be rubber stamping, cheering, and so on. But here's a, a small group of 25 or 30. They meet faithfully week after week, studying their Bibles, and uh, are horrified at what's going on. 
and want to have an impact on their denomination, uh, we will uh, certainly be working with them as they uh, try to impact their island as well. Uh, so we have a number of pastors on Tahiti and Morea uh, who are interested in getting training. Right now I do a Zoom Bible study or uh, training sessions uh, with one gentleman who is from Paia on the west coast of Tahiti. I do that weekly with him and, uh, and also others. So that is going on right now. Current conversations about future ministries. Uh, the two uh, Christian ministries right now that are on uh, Tahiti and beyond, Christian Surfers International, and we want to help refine their gospel presentation. And that means sitting down and saying, well, what, is it, what does it mean to communicate a clear gospel? So they have events where they go out to certain beaches where there are surfers, and they share Christ with them, and we want to work with them. We'd love to equip them with gospel coins and beyond. Uh, child evangelism efforts in Papiete uh, and with other potential locations, we've done this. Uh, we've shared Christ at a Christian school. So uh, I know that sounds like a little kind of an unusual um, sentence to say that we shared Christ at a Christian school, but that's what we did. And uh, evangelism and Bible conference ministries on as many other islands as the Lord provide, provides for and allows. And we are searching for individuals who are on fire to be equipped with great Bible teaching and to become Bible teachers for their own people. Um, preliminary conversations on private Christian education. Uh, one of the things that we in, encountered from the start uh, in Ukraine was that uh, many of the students at, at uh, Word of God Bible College had engineering and math backgrounds, but they weren't so good at writing papers and uh, doing things more on the humanities side. And uh, they were really challenged by that. Well, on French Polynesia, uh, 50% of their young people do not go to high school. And the further out and the smaller island it is, uh, usually about second grade is where they start to drop out. And they think, well, I'm just going to be a, a, a fisherman or, you know, whatever. And if that's all I'm going to be, why would I educate? And uh, so we want to... Uh, at, at least for those who really think they would like to go beyond into ministry, preliminary educations on pri or uh, conversations on private Christian education. And we also uh, are exploring a partnership with the University of French Polynesia. Um, they have a little different view on separation of church and state uh, that may allow us to cooperate with them and teach our courses uh, without uh, the kind of interference. Uh, can you imagine one of us going over to uh, University of Houston and saying, oh, I'm going to teach a theology course now? Well, there may be some potential there, so we're exploring that. Uh, 
And so last but not least, oh, the new Tahitian Bible. Tahitian Bible is 150 years old. And so we are pulling together a team uh, to begin to translate this Bible and to put, uh, we hope, piece by piece, put into the hands of Tahitians a Bible that is not an antiquated Tahitian language and that is not based on the King James Version. I forget if you guys heard New, uh, King James Only Church, are you? I forget. Um, so, they, uh, But not based on the King James. Uh, we're going to go direct from Greek and Hebrew. Uh, we're pulling together a translation team already on that. So uh, that is uh, it's kind of a big deal, and we hope to, uh, to do that. So crucial prayer needs, long-stay visa, uh, God's perfect timing for our relocation. Uh, you said next year uh, we think we can get there in July of 21. And uh, if the Lord opens the door, we will do that. Continued steadfastness for Tahitians in the midst of economic depression. Uh, they have uh, their economy is 95% tourism. Imagine doing without tourists for a year. It's been about like that. So uh, their economy has uh, been destroyed. Identification of those who have a fire to know the scriptures and be leaders in their churches. And please pray with us for these things. And... Uh, so we are being supported through Village Ministries, villageministries.org. You can find us there. We also have a second nonprofit that's especially for college education of Tahitians, and uh, that's evanelia.org, E-V-A-N-E-L-I-A, uh, e which is the Tahitian word for gospel. Evanalia.org, and my email for any questions is Evanalia, P.F. Polynesie Francaise, at gmail.com. And if you have any questions, I would be delighted to uh, answer them to the best of my ability. So fire away, or you know how to get in touch. Yeah, Bryce. You got any mountains to climb on that island? Um, it goes from sea level to 7,200 feet in three miles. So, yes, Mount Orohena. Yeah, they, they've got some uh, good hiking down there. Yeah, for sure. Good question. I'm glad you asked. Yeah. If there's not anything else, we can uh, wrap it up. All right. Thank you very much.